Hi, and welcome back to Opera Off Stage. I'm Jesse, And I'm Michelle. And I'm so excited to introduce our fabulous guest today. She is currently working in Swanee as a director of an opera program there, but she has experience that spans the country and many programs, and we are so excited to have her on here to answer some pressing questions. So let me introduce our guest, Laura Brooks-Rice. It's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, of course. We were so excited when you reached out. Take a moment to tell our audience a little bit about your extensive resume. Well, let's see. It's a long one, so I'll try to be give the Cliff Notes version. There's still Cliff Notes <laughs> out there. <clears throat> that shows you how old I am. <laughs> I, I went to college as a voice performance major in Georgia and found my way to Indiana University, where I found Margaret Harshaw, who was my teacher for over 20 years. And I tell in a story that I, somebody's asked me to do this story that I've done a couple of times here called The Artist's Journey, but I call it The Artist's Journey with Detours, <laughs> because just about every time I started to go somewhere, I, I had to turn left or right and, and eventually found where I was supposed to be in my career. When I first got to Indiana as a star at Georgia Southern College, Miss Harshaw said, that's a great voice. You don't know how to sing, but that's a great voice. Now let's work. So, you know, it took a while to rebuild and put my voice in the right direction. While I was at Indiana, I was an associate instructor, so I was able to hone my craft and teach at the same time, which in retrospect has proven to be probably the best thing that Indiana University did for me and giving me my teacher and giving me the performing experience that I got there. I did the usual YAP thing long before YAP Tracker and long before anything was organized. You know, you put your application in the mail and waited to get something in the mail to see if you were accepted or you were granted an audition. Um, I did a, an apprenticeship at Central City Opera. While I was at Central City, I was able to coach extensively with John Moriarty and um, at the end of that year, in 1981, I won the Met auditions. Amazing! Which was a great, it was a great year. That week, I won the Met auditions and I won the San Francisco Opera auditions and was invited to Marilla. Oh Love it! So <laughs> I was on my way to do my second apprenticeship at Marilla, and um, as a result of the national broadcast, San Francisco Opera hired me to sing Grimgerda in Die Walküre. So I knew I was going to be hired, a hired singer. And I went to Marilla, had a wonderful experience there. And then they decided at the end of Marilla that we'd be, they'd do this thing called the Adler Fellowships. I was the first Adler Fellow, along with Ruth Ann Swinson and Thomas Woodman and several other wonderful colleagues. San Francisco Opera pretty much launched me and launched my career. Interestingly, while I was in San Francisco, I also taught. I taught people in the chorus. I taught rock singers. I taught anybody who wanted to to, to learn how to sing. So all along the way, as I was performing, I was also teaching. A lot of people didn't think that was a good idea at the time, but I'm glad that I didn't listen to them. <laughs> Make sure that you trust your instincts, everyone. You know, if, if it's something that feels right, then stick with it. I, after, after my Adler Fellowship, I moved to Princeton, New Jersey, because I grew up in Atlanta, and my father would go to Newark on business, and I knew... Instinctively, I did not want to live in New York City. <laughs> I don't. It just didn't appeal to me after my first city was San Francisco. Sure. 
So, but my dad went there for business and he said, well, it's either White Plains, New York or Princeton, New Jersey, because you can get into the city. You had to get into New York. You had to be near New York when I started out. It's much different now. He found me a mother-in-law apartment in Princeton, New Jersey. I moved inside unseen and tried to connect with people in the area to try to see if I could get some students to, to pay my rent, you know. <laughs> I was on unemployment after leaving San Francisco Opera and sitting in an apartment in New Jersey waiting for my next audition. Yeah. And one thing led to another, and a, a, a college friend of mine taught at a school in Princeton called Westminster Choir College. I uh, Coincidentally, Miss Harshaw came there every summer to conduct master classes. They asked her if they knew any, if she knew anyone who could teach because they needed an adjunct, and she said, well, try Laura. She's got teaching instincts, and she's just sitting there waiting on her next audition. And so I started at the age of 29 teaching as an adjunct at Westminster Choir College. And that I taught and sang for 35 years there. I was ended up being a tenured full professor and taught at Westminster and sang. I did two seasons at the Met and taught full-time. Wow. I don't recommend it. <laughs> That sounds like a very packed schedule, yeah. <laughs> well, and it was, it, it was before computers, before cell phones. You got a call on if you needed to be in the city. Wow. And so I, would, I wouldn't know until the day before. But my students adapted, and we all got through it, and we did, we did just fine. It's nice to know um, some things never change. You always get your schedule last minute. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, it's been a, it's been an, an interesting dual career for me. When I turned 40, I thought, I don't know who wants to hear a 40-year-old mezzo in audition anymore. And so I parted ways with my manager and put all of my energy into my teaching. When Miss Harshaw passed away, a young tenor came up to me and said that she wanted me to continue to work with him, and his name is Matthew Polanzani. And Matthew and I have been together for more than 23 years now. And so my clientele of students has sort of expanded into that arena, as well as, you know, young up-and-coming students. So I have honed my teaching craft from college freshmen to professionals on the Met stage. It's what I was meant to do, and I'm glad I'm doing it. So that's my story in a nutshell. I retired from Westminster and moved to my, when my father passed away, he left me this home here in Sewanee, Tennessee, where I can easily go. I teach at Washington National Opera. I teach singers at several different opera companies. I'd have a, somebody from the LA program. I have somebody in Opera Columbus. I have somebody in the Toledo program. I'm going, I won't, well, I shouldn't say that yet. And there is another program that I will be teaching in soon, soon as we come to an agreement. Ooh, a little sneak peek. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, where I live, I can either go to Nashville, Chattanooga, or Huntsville, and I can get anywhere. I'm now here, and it seemed to be busier than ever. And I have, and we'll talk about this later, but I've developed a program here that we launched last summer called Opera Fest Sewanee that has been integrated into an existing wonderful, uh, instrumental program that actually Lauren Mazel was a part of founding over 70 years ago. So these wonderful first chair players from orchestras and from universities around the country come here and make up the faculty. And we had a wonderfully successful first year of 23 singers singing all kinds of chamber music, doing opera scenes, doing arias, aria concerts, music theater concerts. So wonderful performing opportunities. So that's 
kind of where I am now. That's me in a nutshell. (laughs) That's amazing. I'm glad you shared that with us. So, wow. What, a, what an exciting career. And it sounds like, you know, you're busier than ever. And, you know, things are only continuing to go up. So one of the things that we were really interested in um, kind of picking your brain about is just the idea of planning a summer program for a lot of young singers. You know, we go on Yap Tracker and we look at all the things that are being offered and, you know, all these different seasons and what's this company doing? What are they doing? What's this festival putting on? But we very rarely really think about you know, all of the teams and all of the hours of work and all the months that it takes to really actually get to that point where it's on Yap Tracker, right? So what goes into planning an opera summer program? And how do you decide on repertoire and the balance of training and performance in such a small or short period? Yeah, well, <clears throat> a, a lot of thought and care goes into it. I, I can tell you that, you know, I was the product of great training programs. I was in the Merrill program and the Adler Fellowship program. It was a time, you know, it's, I sound like, you know, one of those people that said it, that when I was, <laughs> when I was singing, it was the best time. I don't know. I think right now is a great time. And, the, I, and we'll talk about what I think the future is. But Kurt Adler had the idea of really how to train singers. And we had, we were assessed. We knew what we needed to do linguistically. I was trained in a way that my, I could depend on my voice. I knew that and they knew that, but that their idea was to allow young singers to work side, aside seasoned professionals. And so I was on the stage with Birgit Nielsen, with Leonie Riesnick, with Hermann Pry, with Lucha Pop. I had, you know, I was 25 years old and singing Marcellina to Lucha Pop, you know, but they, they, but they knew how to prepare you for that. So knowing what, knowing what I believe is essential for the criteria to have, I believe, a successful operatic career. I, I call it multiplication by zero, that they have five things that you need. You have, you need to have a voice and a technique that you can depend on, a technique that, that shows that you have a unique sound that's appropriate for the operatic stage. Now that's a big, kettle of fish to open up. What does that mean? You know, it doesn't mean it has to be a huge voice. No, it means it needs to be produced well enough that it can be heard over an orchestra in in any theater. Mm-hmm. That you have the musical ability to learn music on your own, that you can be an independent musician, that you have linguistic clarity. You know, fluency is optimum, but if you have uh, an ear for language and you can adapt. That's a, that's an important point. You need to be able to say something as an actor. You've got to be able to understand the depth and meaning of text that then you can physically produce what the, the composer and what the, and eventually what the stage director wants you to do. And you need to have the will to work on all of them. I feel like if any of them are zero, chances are it's going to, it's going to keep you from moving forward. So then knowing all of that, as I bring, as I listen to singers, I mean, for our program, we are pre-Santa Fe, pre any of the, you know, other apprentice programs. And identifying what the singer needs at this particular point in their journey. So when a singer sings for me and my colleagues, we might see that 
they're in really pretty good shape vocally. They need a lot of work with their languages. They're pretty good, pretty good actor. They need probably a little bit more time with a stage director to sort of hone that. And so we take, we assess them and say, and then we create a schedule that's packed with the, the, the coachings that they need. Hmm. I, I kind of envision our program kind of like the Mayo Clinic for opera singers where I have a language specialist and we have uh, stage directors from the Met. We have great coaches, voice teachers, you know, that, that kind of work together to bring the best out of each singer. That's wonderful. And so that's kind of, you know, also I've kind of created this program based on being really frustrated with my own students coming back to me with feedback. Okay. And, you know, when, when you get feedback after an audition and, you know, I would have them come back and say, they said, I sounded good. I just didn't have anything to say. Or I have one singer and I won't mention her name that has had a fabulous career and when she was first heard it was yeah nothing special mm. and it was you know what's your special yeah <laughs> what do they think who do they think they are but you know and it, we had to kind of take a step back and go when well, I wait a second what is special about you and it meant changing her repertoire that presented the things that she was where she was strongest and that was being an excellent musician a particularly skillful linguist, not the biggest voice in the world, but well-produced. So that as soon as we found the right repertoire, not just the standard repertoire, people took notice. And so, but having them come back and say, I need to work with a stage director, or I need to work with a diction coach, you know, there's only so much you can do in an hour voice lesson. And so it was from that that I began to design this program so that I have experts that I rely on in all of those areas that we collaboratively give them the information. That's just the artistic planning, you know, the logistics of getting the program recognized, you know, advertising it. In a lot of ways, the faculty that I bring in here, people go, now that might be something worth looking at. I mean, we have a tuition-based program, which, you know, I'm working very hard to make it not a tuition-based program. Um, the more donors we have, well, my ideal is that we'll have 20 singers eventually on full scholarship. We'll have at least five on full scholarship this summer. but And that's after only one year. But that's eventually my goal because I, for one, do not want to drain your purses. You know, I teach people for free. I do, you know, I do a free studio class every Thursday night for my students. I know what I know what this career costs, and um, I was blessed to have parents who helped me. But just the the logistics of pulling it all together, and then for our program in terms of repertoire, because there's an existing program that they had never had voice. Um, I didn't want it to be you know we're invading you. No, we had to really kind of work to collaborate with what they already had, which was an, an excellent instrumental program and so um, it took a lot of coordinating with the different heads of the different areas and you know for it for it for it to have been a first summer I think I counted maybe 20 different chamber music pieces that were performed from Shepherd on the Rock to the Bacchianas Brasilianas to oh. Auf dem Strom for a tenor you know we had all kinds of wonderful things performed and my instrumental faculty were just loving it and so now that we know we can do it, <laughs> we're going to, we'll have a little bit more organization and planning for next year. 
it just seemed to be, I guess, kismet that I this, that I decided to retire here. And then there's this program here that wanted a vocal program. Yeah. And so, and so we're doing it. Well, and your program does sound very unique and special. <laughs> well, I, we think it is. We think it is. It, it is about the individual. We do. We did a series of scenes from Shakespeare operas where we incorporated some of the spoken monologue. Juliet spoke her uh, poison monologue before she sang the poison aria. And um, one of the University of the South here is very well known for their English department and Shakespeare studies. And we had a retired Shakespeare professor work with them on elocuting Shakespeare texts so that they could dig a little bit deeper into their operatic character from the play's point of view. And we had that performance. I will say I think it's a was a pretty a really very good balance of training coaching and performing and variety of performing so it wasn't about the production for the for the four weeks they were here they got voice lessons they were they got coachings they had group classes on specific types of style and then were performing constantly you know and they didn't sing in a chorus here there was not an opera chorus that which is a, a unique and wonderful opportunity in itself. I mean, I taught at Westminster Choir College for 35 years. I can't say that singing in a choir is not is not a good thing. <laughs> but but that, I will say that it was mostly focused on the individual and, and where they were as a soloist right now. And um, the majority of them got to sing for industry people and get feedback and got to practice auditioning again live on a stage with a pianist which is I mean, uh, at least 10 of our singers from the summer have been granted auditions they got to record their audition arias here their, their pre-screening auditions here on the stage with a pianist so that there was a there was a i think a comfort level before they go post-covid into the audition season yeah yeah so a lot of a lot of a lot of collaborating, and I, from on my part, with uh, the person who runs the whole program is a wonderful guy named John Kilkenny. And I have to say, being able to craft this new program together, uh, it made it really easy. You know, I had to do a lot of listening and allowing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you're coming in for the yeah. first time on something that's been established for 70 years, and but bringing in a new element that, you know, had been missing, that's that definitely seems like a a big game of balance, you know, of give and take. It was, but we, we achieved it and we're moving forward to next year. That's great. Yeah. Well, I think you've also hit on some really important points because one of the things we've covered is talking about summer programs. And one of the things we wanted to emphasize is like, I think sometimes programs, obviously you said you want to move away from being a program where people are paying so, uh, tuition, but we were talking about how programs with tuitions often get a bad name. And it's because there are programs out there that are really just looking to take in money. But I think it's really beautiful the way you've put it, that it's not about a single performance. It's about taking these students and assessing their needs and building schedules that fit them so that at the end of these four weeks, they are a better musician for having been there. Not only that, the unique opportunity to work with really good instrumentalists, which not a lot of summer programs in general have. No. Uh, especially for ones with younger singers in them. A lot of times you just have a coach or a collaborative pianist. So it's uh, what an incredible opportunity. I love that. And I love your commitment to teaching. Like it, it brings me a lot of joy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. Oh, I can pretty much say that Molly is here who, who did the program. I could confidently say that I think everybody left this program singing better than they got here. 
I will. I'm, I'm, I'm confident in saying that that they left. I'm tired. I'm sure, <laughs> but this is the the atmosphere here is quite bucolic. You know, it's a mountaintop community where there's you know, if you wanted to go caving, if you want to go hiking in the woods, if you want to just go spend time in nature, you can. So it's a kind of a place to sort of remove yourself from the fast track and really focus on your skills and focus on what you need to do. I love that. So. Obviously, COVID-19, quarantine and all that had a huge effect on our industry and on singers and on the way we viewed things. It changed how we did competitions and summer programs. Uh, for yourself, what what about your perspective on what you do and the industry kind of changed during that time? Well, clearly, I mean, I've, I'm getting ready to get on a plane tomorrow to go back to Washington. The last time I flew back from there was on my birthday, March 13th, 2020. Oh, wow. Yeah. When right. all of this started. And so, and I haven't flown anywhere since then. But um, I think the good news is the people who are creative, they take a situation like we, we had to deal with and they find creative things to do. John Kilkenny and I created a Winterfest program for opera, for, for the opera program. And we had about 50 singers that were, that we had working this way. And we created a online schedule. All of us were scattered all over the country, all over the world. And um, I said, well, let's just do it. And we did. And, and it was very successful. I had always taught this way before the pandemic because I have singers all over the world. I taught on Skype. I taught on FaceTime. I'd never heard of Zoom before the pandemic. Never heard of Soundjack. Never heard of all these, you know, things that, you know, I was introduced to during this time. And so uh, trying to make lemonade out of, you know, the lemons we were thrown. So I, in, in that, to that end, you know, I told my students, look, I'm used to teaching this way. So it's not going to be a big deal. I did, I created this Thursday night studio class for my students to have an outlet. You know, yes, they were all in their living rooms or in their kitchens or wherever you had to set your stuff up. But, um, I feel like that kept them, gave them a goal and gave them things to do each week and to check in and, you know, be with a singing community. And I think that's the thing we missed the most was being able to collaborate in the same room. And um, we had to do what we had to do during the time. I, do I, I think the industry has changed. I think people realize that when their livelihood depends on their singing schedule and it goes away, that was a big wake-up call for a lot of people. And some people have decided, I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to go into a different industry. And others have decided, you know, I need to plan for this to happen again. I need to know how to financially be able to support my family, to, to support myself, to be able to continue. Look at how many people put themselves up as teachers during this time. Yeah. So I also think that this, what we're doing here today, may have changed industry for the better. I have colleagues who are doing remarkable things, doing movies and doing podcasts are doing things like this on to keep the industry alive. My friend and colleague and opera fest um, faculty member Kathleen Kelly is has has a movie that Minnesota Opera has just produced. It's going to be up until tomorrow, the 23rd. It's called Interstate, an incredible project that she created, helped create and perform. So it's 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 sent like Ryan McKinney actually it was her his wife that produced this movie has done so many wonderful classical 
opera or art song movies. And he's a fantastic bass baritone in his, you know, in his own right. So I think people did kind of pivot in a way. Some people did. Some people just, you know, pulled the covers over their head and said, I can't do this. So I kept dragging my students out, at least on Thursday night. Come on, keep doing it. Stay on track. So I'm hoping that some positive things came out about this. I do know that when people came into our program, the very first week, being live on the stage was very difficult. Mm-hmm. They tended to push because they I don't think they would have been really fully singing in their living rooms. They tended to push when they got into the theater. It was the nerves really were really overtook them. But as they got used to it, as they got used to hearing themselves again in a theater, hearing themselves in an acoustical space, not through headphones and not through this, it began to become more and more comfortable. I'm hoping that some of this will continue. I think that this sort of thing would save in rehearsal time, that that you could certainly do work with stage directors prior to arriving for a staging rehearsal. You could do a lot of table work this way and save travel and save the company time. So my hope is that something good will come out of 2020 and 21. Yes. Yeah, it has definitely been an interesting time i mean it's it's just kind of so much has changed that we're able to immediately you know assign oh this was a good change this was a not so good change but i think we're a couple years away from really being able to process everything that has changed but i'm with you i think i think a lot of positive things have come out of it uh, especially the way that i think the opera community is more connected than ever now that we have podcasts to listen to, now that we have people um, and established artists going on Instagram Live and sharing, you know, their experiences. So much more knowledge is just so much more accessible to young artists when we really need it because we've been very disconnected in the past and just throughout the whole pandemic. So yeah, I'm with you. I think a lot of, yep. I think a lot of good has come from it. Um, Let's hope. So- yeah. <laughs> so to backtrack a little bit, since you are kind of on the overseeing side of, you know, the summer program world, a question that we always get from our audience, and I think a lot of things that are swimming around in young artists' heads are like, when I go in, in into an audition, like, what are they looking for? Or what are they not looking for? Like, what can I avoid? And what can I not do so that, you know, this audition panel doesn't just, you know, immediately start typing on their computer or writing and just and tune me out. So when you're an audition panel, um, you know, aside from very obvious musical mistakes, are there any big red flags, so to speak, that bother you during auditions, like whether it's just a singer's attitude or the way they treat their collaborative pianist? Like, is there anything that young artists should know? Like, do not do this when you go in for an audition. Well, all you know, what you just said is obvious, you know, very often the pianist or the monitor for the auditions is a part of the decision maker. They may be some of the decision makers. And and it's just human nature to be kind to people. You know, Um, I think the biggest thing is that singers need to know who they are. Singers need to know their product. They need to know what is the very best thing about their voice. That's the first thing. You know, you can look great, you can be the best actress, but if what comes out of your throat isn't the isn't first class, nobody's going to be interested. And so I tell my singers that I feel like the very first notes that you produce need to be your best. Mm. 
The very first phrase of an aria needs to needs to make me look up from the desk and go, I need to listen to this. And if I start to start writing, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. You know, I I need to write what I'm hearing and I need to I need to remember. It was the one in the red dress and she had on this and she her hair was pulled up this way and she sang blah blah blah. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think we all just get nervous when we see writing. So nervous, yeah. <laughs> I think you should get, I think you should know that people if people are typing or writing it's either I need to listen to this person again you know or or never listen to this person again I don't think I don't I doubt it but that's and that goes into choosing the right repertoire making sure that the very first thing you sing is your very best and um for me I'm I'm a mezzo soprano I always started with the Dalila la aria because the middle of my voice was that's was my calling card and that I could move up and down really easily. But I needed them to hear that, that D flat to D flat. And then any of my other arias showed that I could, I had an upper extension and I could act or whatever. But, um, my teacher said it was like you're selling bologna <laughs> and you need to know what your ingredients are and you need to know that it's the very best bologna on the market, but you might be singing for a vegetarian, <laughs> you know? That's an amazing so, analogy. <laughs> but, you, you, but, but, and you got to commit to what is, you know, and that's a hard thing to do because we're, we, our self-esteem and who we are is wrapped up in our sound. And I remember Miss Harshaw asking me if the sound of my voice ever made me cry. And I made a joke, you know, yeah, every time I practice, I cry, blah, blah, blah. No, she said, does it move you? Does the sound of your voice move you? And I very sheepishly said, well, sometimes it does. And that's, that's right. It should. That, that you know, it's, it's, it's like looking at yourself in the mirror and picking out, I, that this, these things are really beautiful about me. That's hard to do. It's hard to yeah. do, but you've got to know what's good and what's beautiful about your voice and present it. I think we so often don't even consider how we feel about our own voices mm -hmm. because we're so focused on what other people think of us, what we sound like. And I think so often we all, you know, we all have our favorite singers and we all wish we sounded a little bit more like them. But one of the things I think we're all learning to embrace a little bit more is it's not a bug, it's a feature, which is to say whatever it is about your voice that maybe you're insecure about, maybe it's not the largest voice in the world or you don't have the highest extension on, on your top or whatever, but there's something else about your voice that is special. And you know that somewhere and embracing those things and not being so hung up on the things that your voice just isn't going to do sometimes. And you have to be, you have to, I don't, I don't mean that in an egotistical way. I mean, I don't want somebody to walk in and think, you know, I'm the best person you're ever going to hear in the world. And you can see that a mile away, but you can see confidence, confidence in their abilities. Knowing how your, how your voice works gives you the confidence to walk out there and perform. No questions. I don't have any questions if this note's going to come out. I don't have any questions if I haven't worked out that cadenza. No questions, because I've practiced hard enough. Practice gives me confidence. But it's also important that you have a small group of people around you that will tell you the truth, that, you know, that will cor corroborate this is what's special about you and, and, and be honest with you. You know, I've, I've had to do that, and it's very difficult to be honest with. I've, I will never tell anybody you're not going to sing, never. But I will tell somebody you sing out of tune, and this is why, and let's fix it. Or uh, you have, I mean, I, I remember telling somebody, you have a Maserati, like Miss Harshaw told me, 
you have a fabulous voice. You don't know how to sing. So let's fix it. But you have to have somebody that's going to be honest with you and tell you the truth, tell you when it's right. And also, and this is something I think you have another question this way, you know, why do you go into a young artist program? What is it? What is it that you expect to get out of it? And when is it right to go into one? Uh, that's that's a part of knowing your product and knowing where you are in the whole scheme of this. What is a performing career? You know, I I've told my students I feel like the performing career is like a triangle. There are very few people at the top of that triangle, but lots of happy people along throughout the whole every level of it. You know, and it's knowing where you live within that that ideal. I mean, I, my face has never been on the cover of Opera News. You know, I, I was on the cover of the New York Times Arts once, but, you know, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that I haven't had a very successful career. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think any of us would argue that. <laughs> but, but that's the thing. You're right. It's you were saying earlier, you know, if something feels right, don't give up on it. And I, I think you're right. It's like if you find we were talking about this in a separate episode about like what success means. And we're like, if you find happiness being a fest contract singer, singing in opera choruses, and that brings you happiness and that stability brings you a lot of joy, like then you've achieved it. You've achieved the thing we're all looking for, which is happiness in the thing that we do. But if you also find that you're happy in the periphery of opera, I mean, Gina Lipinski, who is on our faculty, who's stage director at the Met, has a voice performance degree. And, and you know, was a very fine singer but she found that she really she found her niche as a stage director and she's you know very very successful i remember when i first started teaching i had colleagues saying this is not what you're supposed to do you're not supposed to be teaching you're just supposed to go and sing and i had to trust my instinct and i'm glad i did because i have a retirement income <laughs> yeah <laughs> a smart decision <laughs> definitely that's not the only reason so in, in audition and in careers, learn to trust yourself and learn to trust a couple close people around you. Yes. And if you get, if you, you know, there are lots of people who are going to give you opinions about your singing and about your talent. Bring that information back to that, I would say, one or two people. And it's usually not your mother. It's going to give you <laughs> honest feedback. I mean, my mother used to say, they're going to pay you for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My mom's about as close to tone deaf as you can get. So, <laughs> but you know, they got to be able to say, you know, yes, it's it's right, go for it, or why don't you try this track, try to go in this direction and see how well you might prosper there, and then let's move forward. Sure. So, um, it's. I wish I could say that it was a cookie cutter um, road to success in this business, but it isn't. Sure. Um, I something that I was very interested in is, um, you know, you your studio, uh, many of the singers in your studio have gone on to sing at the Met, the Washington Opera, Sarasota, Opera Theater of St. Louis, Fort Worth Opera, Minnesota Opera, so on and so forth. The list continues. And it's just very interesting to me, like, aside from, you know, really knowing your your voice and, and being confident in your ability as a singer, is there are there any other kind of you know, determining factors to having a successful career or, or when you look at your, so to speak, top performing students, is there anything that they have in common? I think the word that comes to mind is balance. Hmm. That not only in our own singing, we have to find a balance. Chiaroscuro, 
space, no space, you know, all kinds of things that we need to strike a balance to find the best quality of singing. But then a balance in life, you know, what what a performing career entails. Um, if you have a family or, you know, there are all kinds of, I mean, I'm working with three women who are currently pregnant and are, are pursuing this. And so that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just knowing how to strike a balance between what you do and who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what they do is sing and they work on their craft. I will say the ones who are at the top that still study are some of the best ones who really are interested and practice every day and really are interested in not obsessing about their voices, but making sure that it's healthy and it's always in the right place and that they have somebody with ears that can make sure it stays on the right place. That's what Miss Harshaw was for me. And I, my biggest goal for any of my students is to be independent of me. Hmm. Um, I think that the ones that are the most successful are the ones I don't hear from every week. That they check in every month, maybe, maybe every two months. Uh, and, and not necessarily because they're in trouble, just because, you know, they just want to check in. And so uh, really understanding who they are, understanding their instrument and being able to balance their life around their career, I think are the ones who are the most successful. I do. And the ones that I work with at the top really don't fall down that rabbit hole of social media and hearing what everybody's saying about them. Mm. That can be really difficult. You know, we used to have to wait for the newspaper reviews to come out. I have some that have been handed recordings of their performance when they're still getting their makeup off. Ugh. It can be, it can be difficult. Matthew Polanzani was asked once in one of my classes, when did you know you were a singer? And he said, I still don't know that. I know I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a brother, I'm a son. You know, singing is what I do. And that being able to separate the two, I think, is, is part of success. It's healthy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's healthy that especially since you're, if you're especially when your ego is wrapped up in what you do, and and if it's not successful, it can also be unhealthy. If it's very successful, it can be unhealthy. But knowing how to balance and um, separate, I wish we could put this in a case and put it in the closet. We can't. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I think you bring up something uniquely. Uh, strange and difficult I think for young singers now which is a lot of young singers now grow up with the internet and therefore you're kind of bombarded with other people's opinions Mm -hmm. all the time their thoughts on every little thing that comes across their their for you page whatever else and so I think for some people though that anonymous audience lives in your head a little more because you know they can hear you and they you know that people can write terrible things just because they don't have to show their face when they say it. That's pretty difficult. But, you know, that's one of the first things I do. If somebody contacts me and they want to study with me, I'll look, I'll look and see what they're doing on social media. You know, I'll look for them on YouTube. I'll look for them on Instagram and Facebook and see what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and so you gotta, you need to go back to that small group and say, should I put this out there? Yeah. <laughs> because people are going to look. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are going to look at it. Yeah, you can't exactly avoid it either. No, but it's also a good thing. It's also good. It's, you know, this can serve to sort of be a really broad and uh, useful resume. It can be very useful. If, as long as the product that you know, your own product, is the best product that you're able to produce, you're putting out there. Nothing else. <laughs> 
Yes. So to kind of wrap us up, you know, you are you are working with young singers. You are ushering in multiple generations of singers. And so for you, kind of what are you hoping the future of opera looks like? Because it, it's changing constantly. What I hope is that the opera, opera becomes more relatable and accessible to a younger audience. The audiences that are gray hair are, you know, they're fewer and fewer. Although, you know, in our little community here, it's the gray hairs who are there and love it. And you want to make sure that every generation has what they need from the stage. But I'm hoping that it can become more accessible, uh, more affordable to a younger audience. And I know many companies are working that way. I was introduced to classical music growing up in Atlanta because we were bused down to Symphony Hall and got to hear the Atlanta Symphony and Robert Shaw. And um, so we got... and. Funny story, when I was in high school, I was chosen to be a part of a chamber choir that performed with Robert Shaw and rehearsed. And he called me, I was on the front row of the alto section, he called me up to him and he said, come see me about seven or eight years after you're out of college. Fast forward, when I was at Indiana University, he came to conduct the B minor mass. It was right when I was getting ready to go to New York for the Met auditions. And I reminded him of that story. And he was so amused by it, he hired me. I love it. <laughs> I made my I made my debut at the Atlanta Symphony singing Beethoven Ninth. So you know you you never know you never know yeah. what that type of introduction as a young kid is going to do for you. I, my parents always played all kinds of music in the home. So and <laughs> I was always intrigued by cartoons. You know my generation. I you know it was it was Saturday morning cartoons had was filled with opera and classical music. It's not that so it, I. I remember, actually, it was Mala who's sitting here, and I remember her saying to me after our winter program that she would love to see opera as cool as fashion on Instagram, to find a way to get, to make it cool, to make it accessible, and that's up to you guys, because nobody's <laughs> going to think I'm cool. <laughs> I mean, our audience may disagree. I think they're going to be pretty excited, but we're working yeah. on it. <laughs> that, that's that's what I hope, you know, there's certain traditions that are, that will probably continue, but there's, there's traditions that are changing. I mean, Stephanie Blythe just sang Don Jose. We were I so know. excited. And so, <laughs> you know, the whole, everything is sort of, everything is changing in, I think, a healthy way. Yeah, I think, I think opera is opening itself back up to opportunities and new ideas and new stories. I think that is what will, will draw in audiences. That and good music education <laughs> well yeah. i think i'm um, fire shut up in my bones that the met has drawn oh people in yeah and so yeah. you know just the fact that the met has programmed something like that it's hopeful you know so many companies are doing innovative things atlanta opera is doing wonderful things they did a whole uh series of uh they did pagliacci and uh i think kaiser von atlantis or something like that that involved commedia characters in a tent outside so that they could actually have performances. So, so many companies are doing innovative things. There's a lot of new works being written that I think uh, reflect society now, and hopefully that pulls people into the theater. And then makes them say, well, maybe I'll go hear Aida, or maybe I'll go hear La Boheme, or maybe I'll go hear The Marriage of Figaro. It will spark their interest. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then we got them <laughs> as longtime opera lovers. <laughs> that's, that's what we yeah. hope. That's all we hope. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. Well, this chat has been a joy. Thank you so much for joining us. 
where can our audience connect with you? Where can they find you? Where can they hear more about your summer program? Well, they can find me personally at my website, laurabrooksrice.com. There's just, there's some things on there. (laughs) (laughs) My program, Sony Opera Fest, I know this is going to air after this fact, but we are, our applications open today, October 15th. And our program dates are June 18th through July 17th, where people can come and work with Kathleen Kelly, Joan Dorneman, myself, Doug McDonough from LSU, Gina Lipinski from The Met, Kira Duffy, I'm forgetting, Patrick Hansen from Opera McGill. So I have this great group of friends and colleagues. Joan Dorneman played for me when I was a Met winner in 1981. So we've known each other a long time. And the information she has from all the great singers she's worked with is invaluable. I'll also be teaching this summer in Italy in a program called Bel Canto Tuscany Mm -hmm. in Chianti in July and August. Awesome. And uh, lots of great ways to connect. (laughs) I'm right here on top of the mountain in Suwannee, Tennessee. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So if you don't find her in Suwannee, you gotta go check Italy. That's yeah, a pretty good deal. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. Um, it You're was welcome. a pleasure to have you on the podcast and good luck with everything. Thank you. Thanks so much. So thank you again to Laura Brooks Rice. We were so grateful to have her on the podcast. Sawani is also hosting some master classes for singers on October 25th and November 1st. So we will have a link to those in our episode description as well. If you guys have any follow-up questions to what we talked about in the podcast or if you've got any other guests you would like to see on the podcast, you can always send those to us either through our website, opera-offstage.com, or through our Instagram, at Opera Offstage, or Twitter, which is also at Opera Stage, TikTok, or our Discord, which you can get to through our Instagram bio. And we will see you next week. Bye! <laughs>